John chapter four, beginning in verse one, it says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, depending on if you're reckoning Roman time or Jewish time, either 12 noon or six o'clock in the evening. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink. You would have give, asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to, to draw. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said what do you seek or, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Some of you are familiar with the commercial obey your thirst. 
we hear voices and it tells us to do certain things. But when we hear someone, the immediate response is typically, how can I trust the voice that I'm listening to? How do I know this person knows what they're talking about? How do I know that this person cares for me? In this chapter, Jesus will ask for liquid water and offer living water to an empty, hurting Samaritan woman. We never learn her name. Our story begins with a savior and a sinner at an ancient well, Jacob's well. It was nestled between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerazim in Samaria. Jesus will make contact with the woman and then contrast liquid water with living water. We know that human beings have to have water on a daily basis. If you are dehydrated up to two or three or four percent, it can cause immediate illness and more than that can be fatal. We can survive a few days without water, but constant deprivation brings dehydration and death. And once again, Jesus is going to present a revelation. He is able to offer living water. A perpetual spring, an everlasting fountain, which can satisfy the deepest thirst of all. How long can a person live without hope? How long can a person survive without faith? How long can a person continue without love? How long can a person survive without friendship and fellowship and relationship with creator God? How long can we last Without a heavenly father, how long can we live without a savior? Professor Zane Hodges in his book, The Hungry Inherit, writes, and I quote, Love, success, wealth, fame, these were but a few of the countless springs at which men had stooped to drink, only to rise from them to find that they offered no lasting inward satisfaction, no enduring personal fulfillment. But his water was different. It could accomplish a miracle. The one who drank it was secure from thirst, not merely for time, but for eternity as well. So vital, so transforming was such a drink that in the innermost being of the man who drank it, there was created an inexhaustible fountain of life. The waters of that hidden inner spring could not run dry. They could never be exhausted or blocked or restricted. They virtually leaped up, produced the surprising experience of eternal life. Isn't that good? In chapter three, Jesus has a conversation with an aging theologian. You must be born again. In chapter 4, he offers a thirsty Samaritan woman living water. Later in John 8, he says to a blind man that I'm the light of the world. The contrast between the two characters in chapter 3 and 4 couldn't be more different. Nicodemus named. The woman unnamed. A, a man. A woman one comes at night, the other comes in the heating, blazing middle of the day. One, a theologian. The other, well, not a theologian by any stretch of the imagination. One, highly respected. The other, a social outcast. 
One cautious, the other bold, one who doesn't seem to know what he wants. The other winds up going to a village and sharing her encounter with the living Lord. Look again in verse one. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Parashim, the Pharisees, had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. John starts the story with an explanation. Jesus leaves Judea in order to avoid a popularity contest with John the Baptist. The word translated in verse 2, though Jesus himself did not, did not baptize, but his disciples, the word but can be translated except or not restricted to his disciples. The idea could mean that Jesus may have in fact baptized his own disciples. But the implication is the baptizing that was going on took place with the disciples as they were baptizing others who in repentance were coming and hearing the message of hope in the kingdom of God. And so why is that important? Because, again, Jesus wants to avoid conflict, but he also has a predetermined plan. He, it says he must needs go through Samaria. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Bible geography or, or Israeli geography, in the very north is Galilee. In the middle is Samaria. In the south is Judea, is Judea. So if you are in Judea, you have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. If you're in Galilee, you have to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem and Judea. Samaria is the most direct route. But a good Jew would typically go to the other side, the eastern side of the Jordan, make his way or her way south through the region known as Perea to avoid contact with the dreaded Samaritans. So we're not told why Jesus needed to go through Samaria other than in the end, we know it's because Jesus has a divine date, a preordained plan with a woman who needs a savior. So in verse five, it says, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar or Sychar near the plot of land that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. When Jacob was dying, he blessed his own children. And in that hierarchy of blessing, he began to divest himself, if you will, of the land. It says now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Again, depending on if you're reckoning Roman time or Jewish time, it can be 12 noon or six o'clock in the evening. I suspect that it's 12 noon. And the reason why I suspect that it's 12 noon is because in Jewish culture and society, particularly in first century Israel, women would come to the well very early in the morning to avoid the heat of the day, or they would come later in the in the evening when the sun was getting ready to go down. And so I suspect for reasons that we're going to see in a moment that she shows up at noon. 
a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. They made the short journey from the well into the village. John's narrative continues with the place where Jesus decides to stop. The place where Jacob again gave his son Joseph the well. Sychar or Sychar is associated with ancient Shechem. On the eastern edge of the valley that separates Mount Ebal from Mount Gerazim. And for those of you who are going to wind up going with me to Israel, we will go hopefully at least towards the the, the current population where the current Samaritans live. Mount Gerazim and Mount Ebal, there is a valley and in that valley is the well. Right now, if you go there, there's a wall that separates the East Bank from the West Bank. This is currently the heart of Palestinian territory in the city that you and I know it know as Nablus. And it says Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, plopped himself or sat thus by the well. The idea is he's tired and he's really tired. In other words, the fact that Jesus is both God and man does not in any way diminish his humanity. Jesus got tired just like you. Jesus had to eat and sleep just like you. Oswald Chambers said, the world is run by tired men. That's because he didn't understand that the world is in fact run by tired women. That's right. Women still work even when they're tired. Jesus ministers when he is tired. I suspect most souls are won by tired people. The best sermons are often preached by exhausted pastors. The best youth camps are run by exhausted ministers. The third world is being evangelized by tired missionaries. And Christian organizations are run by tired men and women. Show me a great vacation Bible school and you know what I'll show you? Exhausted workers. Jesus was willing to reach out even though he was exhausted and tired and thirsty. The reason why this becomes important is because are you willing to minister when you're tired, when you're exhausted? It could very well be that God has a plan and a purpose, but it is at that moment of deprivation. It is it is at that moment of weariness that you come to a place of emptiness And God shows up and he wants to use you in ways that you never imagined. In first Thessalonians, chapter two, verse nine, Paul writes and he says, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. One pastor, many Hundreds of years ago, when he would get up and go into his study, he would take off his slippers and he would put on his working man's boots because it was a hard job. And again, Jesus comes, he sits down by the well. And I suspect it is noon because it hints at her reputation, perhaps her reputation for promiscuity. 
It causes her to come when she doesn't have to deal with the searing stares of the solid citizens of Sychar. You see, the woman at the well is really a first century desperate housewife. And she has an amazing story. And everyone in Sychar knows her story. John continues and and he basically says in verse nine, look for yourself. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, that's partially true and partially not true. And let me tell you what I mean. Jews had some dealings with Samaritans. There was courtesy and interaction. The the disciples have gone to Sychar to get food for the master. But for the most part, Jews really did have no dealings with Samaritans. There was intense hatred, racial animosity between Jew and Samaritan. You see, the, the, the Samaritans were a biracial people. In 722 B.C., the invading armies of Assyria came with Shennacherib and destroyed the northern kingdom. They destroyed the capital and then they took the people prisoners. And during their years in Assyria, men and women intermarried with foreign people, Assyrians and what was known as Kuthites. And then they returned to this particular region between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And in 587 B.C., Babylon took the people of southern Judah and Jerusalem. But in Babylon, there was very little intermarriage. Jews could trace their lineage back to David and Jacob and Abraham. And as a result, they came to resent their northern cousins. And both sides developed an animosity, a deep-seated Hatred towards one another. As a matter of fact, Jewish rabbis used to say, let no man eat the bread of the Kuthites. Those were the Samaritans. For he who eats their bread is he who eats swine's flesh. I was born in New Orleans. And when I was born, we had white bathrooms and and colored bathrooms. We had white swimming pools and colored swimming pools and white drinking fountains and colored drinking fountains. As a matter of fact, one of my friends who grew up in Texas, he said, I hate to admit this. This this person was a prominent attorney and and he was a good guy and and an upstanding Christian. But he was taught from an early age that if he even shook hands with a black person, he became defiled. And it's hard for him to shape that prejudice. Think about that. And you have an understanding of how deep the hatred and the animosity was between these two people. A popular prayer in those days that a religious Jew would pray. And Lord, do not remember the Samaritans and the resurrection. The idea is that they're subhuman people and they they don't deserve to come back to life. The Samaritans were barred from the temple in Jerusalem, and so they set up an alternative temple in the region of Mount Gerizim. Now, remember, they are Jews, and so they still have Jewish sensibilities. They believe in the Pentateuch. That means the first five books of Moses. They believe in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but they reject the prophets. They reject the Proverbs. They reject the Psalms. But they also 
altered some of the stories, even in the first five books of Moses. For instance, in their way of thinking, the Garden of Eden was located, guess where? Mount Gerizim. And when Abraham, when Noah's Ark landed, guess what, where it landed? Mount Gerizim. And when Abraham offered Isaac, guess where he offered Isaac? Yeah, Mount Gerizim, you got it right. In other words, they took out and then added what fit their own peculiar theology. Most Jews would go miles out of their way to avoid crossing the Samaritan border. And when you wanted to insult a Jew, remember later on in the New Testament when the religious leaders accused Jesus of being demonically possessed. The worst thing that they can think to call him is a Samaritan. I have a friend who is watching a couple argue on the beach in California and, and, and the couple got into this heated argument and they, they started calling each other filthy and despicable names. And finally, in, in frustration, the woman, when she couldn't think of a more disgusting thing that she could call her husband, she said, you tourist. You see, in California, that's the worst thing you could call someone. And so, the Pharisees taught that no respectable woman would, rabbi would speak to a woman in public. So, were so averse to looking at a woman in public, they would avert their, their gaze, which caused many a rabbi to crash into walls and bushes. But Jesus breaks down the cultural and the racial and the gender rules. By the way, in the Greek language, there usually was only one word that you would use for both enemy and stranger. It's the word xenos. We get the word xenophobic from it. And so, again, when the gospel came, when the message of hope came, when the message of salvation came in the person of Jesus Christ, Gentile and Jew were saved. Free and slave were saved. Male and female were saved. Barbarian, Scythian, ignorant, learned. They could join together into this one thing called the body of Christ. And the ancient world looked at Christians and accused them of sorcery and conspiracy because the gospel of Jesus Christ was willing to go anywhere and talk to anyone. There is a measure of truth that the best person to reach the lost, if you want to reach the lost in India, Indians are probably the best people to reach the people of India. Law enforcement officers are probably the best people to reach law enforcement officers. Doctors are probably the best people to reach doctors. Athletes are probably the best people to reach athletes. But guess what? In the end... In the end, our hearts have to reach beyond our gender and our ethnicity or our economy, our circle of comfort. We have to go beyond our prejudice to anyone who needs the gospel of hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, notice what Jesus does. He points out three things about himself. In effect, Jesus says, if you knew who I am 
And if you knew what it was that I had to offer, and if you knew how it was possible to receive what I have to offer, you would have asked me for living water. That is an inexhaustible source of inward satisfaction. And don't miss what it says in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, don't miss that. Not the obligation of God, not the debt of God. If you knew the gift of God, what is a gift? It's something freely given. You can't purchase the gift of God. You can't earn the gift of God. You can't obligate this gift and receive it from God. It is a gift and the source is God. And look what it says. And he who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. Look how you receive the living water. You don't beg for it. You don't steal it. You don't earn it. You don't fabricate it. Whatever it is and wherever it comes from, if it can be found in a human well, then it isn't living water. If it can be found in physical circumstances and if if it can dry up or go away, then this isn't the living water. But notice what Jesus says. The way that you get it is you ask for it. Isn't that wild? And look what it says. Think about it. God has shown up and offered the woman eternal life. The woman doesn't understand. But again, before you uh, men say, yeah, they don't understand hardly anything. I want to remind you, Nicodemus in chapter 3 didn't understand at first either. One of the most famous people at the end of World War II in the 1950s was a famous writer named Malcolm Muggeridge. He was friends with C.S. Lewis. And he was quite popular in the 1950s. And and he came to a, a saving knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. And Malcolm Muggeridge wrote, and I quote, I may, I suppose, regard myself... Or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of the living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. One of the ways that you can know it isn't salvation is if you need it again. If you wake up tomorrow and you need it again, it is not salvation. And notice what the woman says in verse 11. The woman said to him, sir. You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You'll notice the progress that is being made by the woman. 
Jesus goes from Jew to sir. By the way, you're going to discover something about this passage. The more the woman talks to Jesus, the more she begins to understand his identity and his mission, then her own understanding of Jesus begins to expand. And by the way, the word for well in verse 11 and 12 is the Greek word freer. If you were to anglicize it, I would spell it P-H-R-E-A-R. It means a well that's dug on purpose. In other words, it's a deliberate well. It's a pit. It's a shaft. But Jesus uses a different word in verse 14. Pege, which means a spring or a fountain. The woman is talking about a hole in the ground. And Jesus is promising her an everlasting, eternal, bubbling spring, which comes from the inside and results in eternal life. And so, again, the woman's initial reaction is not the offer, but the how of the offer. Look what it says again. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a pitcher. You don't have a water pot. You don't have a rope. And look, the well is deep. And the reason why the well is deep, because she was right. Jacob had drank from that well. His children had drank from that well. Their livestock had drank from that well. Many people over hundreds of years had drunk from that well. The woman's initial reaction is not the offer, but the how of the offer. The woman is confused about the material and the spiritual. How do you get living water from a man-made well? But Jesus knows men. And Jesus knows women. And there's only one thing a woman likes better than a sail. And that's when it's free. I was talking to a police officer. And I said, what? What do you like best? Because there's only one thing I like better than food. I said, what's that? He said, free food. There's only one thing that a woman likes better than a sail. And it's free stuff. And then she says in verse 12, are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Now, you know, the right answer, the right answer is Jesus could say, well, I know you're just a woman at the well and you've never heard of deoxyribonucleic acid. It's called DNA. And basically, guess what? I created the heavens and the earth and and everything that you see. As a matter of fact, I created everything that exists. And then I allowed Jacob to come into existence. Not only do I know him and not only do I great am I greater than him, he would actually not even exist if it weren't for me. The woman is, in effect, saying, look, this isn't just any ordinary well. This is a historical landmark. Have you ever driven across country and there's a sign? This is a historical landmark. Very serious, historical, cool things have happened here. You go up I-70 and you see the sign. Wild Bill is buried on the top of the hill. And you go, oh, I need to stop and I need to see this. This is no ordinary place. You go to Washington, D.C., you enter the White House, you see a sign, Lincoln slept in this room. You go down the hall, Clinton slept in this room. And you go, so? But Jesus clarifies, look what it says in verse 13. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. 
Notice what he's pointing out. There's two kinds of thirsts. There's hungers, desires, and thirsts that you have to have satisfied over and over again. Some of you have been holding your breath for a very long time, but you won't be able to hold it throughout the whole message. You'll have to gasp for air at a particular moment. Some of you can go for a day without water, but you typically can't go for days without water. Some of you can go for weeks without food, but you can't typically go for a very long time without food. There are certain things that you need and you need them over and over again. And I want you to think about that thing that you think that you need or the thing that you think that you want, that thing that, that, that preoccupies you and, and, and you think satisfies you, but you need it over and over again. And so Jesus is going to bring out the fact that he's talking about something entirely different. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him. And note, he's the source of the water. And note what else it says. Will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become a fountain. There's that word, pege, of water springing up into everlasting life. In the Old Testament, the writer said, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the water. He who has no money, come ye by and drink. John uses the word life some 36 times in this gospel. Jesus provides air and breath and life. He's the bread who came down from heaven. Now note, she asks for the gift. But she doesn't really know what she's asking for. You see, some of us might be tempted at this point to hear Jesus say, oh, you want the gift? Well, now bow your head and close your eye and say, I, Samaritan woman, I, Samaritan woman, take me, Jesus, take you, Jesus, to be the Messiah. He doesn't do that. I want you to note carefully what he does do. Jesus has to plow the soil of her superficial understanding. He has to prepare her heart for the seed of the word of God by convicting her and convincing her of personal sin. Jesus must get her to see her sin and admit her sin and cry out for a savior. There must be conviction of sin and repentance from sin so that there can be saving faith. Look in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus, transport me into the future where there's running water, where I never have to walk ever again. I never have to go out of my way. I can have an, uh, an ending, unlimited source to draw from. And look what Jesus says to her. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband. Now, by the way, in John chapter four, you'll note in the conversations between Jesus and the woman. Note carefully, count the words. I have no husband. It's the shortest response the woman gives during the entire conversation. Now, I'm not saying that women talk more than men. But they talk a lot less when they're under conviction. And she's under conviction. As a matter of fact, she's under conviction 
Because almost anyone would rather talk about religion than sin. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Paul writes and he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that the world may become guilty before God. The purpose of the law was to reveal the fact that there's something wrong, there's something missing, there's something empty, there's something sinful, there's something disjointed. And the purpose of the law was to remind us that we're breakers of the law. Jesus says, for you've had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband in that you spoke truly. Did she have five husbands and was the guy she was currently living with without the benefit of marriage, not her husband? We're not told, but we do know this. She had five failed relationships. And perhaps the first marriage started off like so many marriages. Full of hope, full of love, full of enthusiasm and expectation. And the relationship failed. And she entered into another relationship. And another relationship. And another relationship. And another relationship. And she went from failed relationship to failed relationship, seeking the satisfaction that comes from companionship and love and friendship and fellowship. But look what it says in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir. I perceive that you're a prophet. Again, remember, as her explanation continues, Jesus goes from Jew to gentlemen, to prophet. But Jesus is something more. I suspect that the woman must be wondering, should I listen to him? Is this a man I can trust? Is this a person who knows what he's talking about? Is this a person who is going to judge me and condemn me or care about me because the truth is out? She's a serial adulteress shunned by the people of Sychar. And you know what happens when you're overwhelmed with conviction? Often you want to talk religion. Our father, she says, worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Remember what happened there. Their family and friends were split up at the time of the dividing of the kingdom. It was David and then Solomon. And then there were there, there was another king and then the king to the north and the king to the south divided and they became separate kingdoms. And so the ongoing religious debate was, well, where do we go to worship? And in John chapter four, verse 21, look what Jesus says. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such to worship him. If you're one of those people who underline your Bible, this is one that you want to underline. 
For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, it's a lot more comfortable to discuss religion than to face one's sins. And you can tell that conviction is taking place when people want to debate with you tongues and tithing and baptism, Calvinism versus Arminianism, creation versus evolution. You'll note that people can come up with tens and then hundreds of thousands of questions. The woman speaks of our fathers and then Jesus turns her attention to the father. And once again, Jesus reveals the woman's ignorance and reminds her that she doesn't she doesn't know who to worship and she doesn't know where to worship and she doesn't know how to worship. And you should note this. Read it for yourself. Jesus doesn't say that all religions are the same. They are not the same. They are not the same. She said he, he says you are wrong. All religions are not equal before God. All religions are not acceptable to God. In fact, some people who claim we all pray to the same God are either acting in ignorance or they are acting in unbelief. The only faith that God will accept is the is the one God has revealed through the Jewish people. The Bible is a Jewish book. Jesus is a Jewish savior. Only those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit and obey the truth can worship God in an acceptable manner. And so for the Samaritan to hear that true worship could not take place in Mount Gerizim, it would have been devastating. And for the Jew reading Jesus' words, worship will cease in Jerusalem. That's unthinkable. But Jesus points out. It isn't the externality, but it's the internality. God is spirit. And look what it says. The father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John's gospel clearly reveals that there's a new sacrifice in John chapter 1, verse 29. A new temple in John chapter 2, verse 19. And here in chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, a new birth in John chapter 3. New water in John chapter 4, verse 11. And Jews reading this gospel would realize that God has established in Jesus Christ a whole new covenant and a whole new economy. The covenant, the old covenant law has been fulfilled and set aside and fulfilled in the person of Christ. And again, the father is seeking such to worship him. Do you feel far away from God? Do you ever wake up and you think, where are you? Where are you, God? I'm not sensing your presence. When you woke up this morning and you did your devotions, did you sense the presence of God when you when you prayed? Did you sense the presence of God when you came into the sanctuary and you began to worship and you set aside time? Did you sense the presence of God? Well, let me make a suggestion to you. The father is seeking such to worship. Don't don't try to find him. Let him find you. Do you realize it's a lot easier for God to find you than for you to find him? The father 
is seeking such to worship him. Are you willing to worship him in spirit? That means from the inside instead of the outside. In truth, that means in a way that is consistent with the revelation of God and the character of God as it's found in the word of God. Bow your head. Bow your heart. Embrace him. Worship him. Acknowledge him. Trust him. Believe him. And guess what? He'll show up. Acknowledge his glory, his majesty. And look what it says in verse 25. The woman said to him. I know that the Messiah is coming. By the way, the the Samaritans believed in the Messiah. It's found in the, the books of Moses. There would arise a prophet very much like Moses. Do you realize that the Samaritans to this very day look for a Messiah? As a matter of fact, there's a group, an odd group that you can find in Israel called the Druze. And their men wear a great big puffy dress like Garment, because according to Druze theology, a Druze man will give birth to the Messiah. The Muslims believe that the Mahdi will come and deliver the Muslim world. The the Hindus speak of the reincarnation of, of Krishna. The Maitreya who will come and make everything right, wrong or wrong, right, excuse me. And look what Jesus says. I who speak to you am he. This may come as a shock to you, but this is the first time in Jesus's ministry that he admits openly and plainly that he's the Messiah. He doesn't say it to the religious leaders. He doesn't say it to John the Baptist. He doesn't say it to his disciples. He says it to a to a desperate housewife from Sychar with failed relationships who shows up at a well. Don't you wonder why Jesus didn't show up to Tiberias or appear to the Roman governor or find the richest, the most wealthy, the most influential person to give this news to? But he shows up to a woman and he says it to her. You want to know why? Because God is no respecter of persons. God is so totally unimpressed with you. Which could very well be the main reason why he's willing to show up and reveal himself to you and tell you who he is. And in the original language, when Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am. He isn't in the original text. Jesus admits that he is the Messiah. In John's gospel, eight times Jesus will use that expression, ego imi. I am, I am. And some foolish, foolish people wrongly say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Hello. Read it for yourself. The Samaritan woman says, when the Messiah shows up, I'll believe him. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. Jesus goes from contact to curiosity, to conviction, to confession. 
And look at verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or, or why are you talking with her? You, you have to understand something. I've already told you that no self-respecting rabbi would talk to a woman. But what I didn't tell you is in the ancient world of Judaism, no respecting Jew would even talk to his own mother in public, his sister in public, his female child in public. It simply wasn't done. But no one said, what are, you, what are you looking for or, or why are you talking with her? The Bible says the disciples marveled, but they couldn't bring themselves to ask any questions because Jesus refused to be restricted by fear or prejudice or ignorance. And look what it says in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me. All things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. By the way, in English, this question seems to suggest a positive answer. Could this be the Christ? Well, yeah. But in the original language, the prefix has a peculiar construction. It says meti. It suggests a negative answer. Uh, the way that it's sometimes translated, this is not the Christ, is it? Other translations read, could this be the Christ or can this be the Christ? The implication is. He's made a claim about himself. I wonder if it's true. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if this is the person that everyone has been looking for since time began. By the way, you notice the woman left her water pot. How did that happen? She came there to get a drink. She completely forgot about why she was even there to begin with. It could be that the water pot no longer mattered to her. Maybe she left the water pot for Jesus and his disciples to refresh themselves because they didn't have anything to draw from. I suspect the real reason. Because she was satisfied. There was something inside of her that got filled up and completely overwhelmed. It may be that she didn't come to Jesus immediately, but Jesus would be patient with her. She would go to the village. She would declare her encounter with Jesus. And can you believe it? Jesus uses this woman. This woman. The most despised woman. The most talked about woman. The most rejected woman. To reach an entire village. Jesus ministers when he's weary. He ministers when the social and the cultural norms say you're not welcome. Jesus doesn't take the safe path, but everything he does is motivated by love. Jesus ministers even when questions are asked. To avoid the real issues of sin and salvation. On Wednesday, I was teaching through the book of Isaiah in chapter 45, and I concluded with a story that seems to fit so well here this morning. 
C.S. Lewis wrote a series of children's stories in which Christ is figured as a lion. Some of you are familiar with it, Narnia. And, and in one, the silver chair, later on in the series, a girl named Jill bursts into an opening in a forest and she's thirsty and she spies a stream not far away, but she doesn't rush forward to throw her face into the refreshing current. Instead, she freezes in fear because a lion is resting in the sun right beside the stream. I quote, are you thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only with a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty. She was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I don't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose that I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream said the lion. You'll notice in the story that it's exactly what happened in John chapter 4. Fear of the unknown. But the little girl steps one step closer and one step closer and one step closer. You know what's the difference between Nicodemus and the woman at the well? He walks away and she walks towards the source of satisfaction. She comes nearer and nearer and nearer to Jesus. Are you close enough to get the water? It's free. And remember how you get it. You ask for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice. Lord, for the person who has said, I'll go drink at another stream. I'll continue to satisfy myself from the wicked wells of failed philosophy and empty dreams. Lord, we know it's not salvation. It can't be salvation. 
if you have to have it over and over and over and over again. But how wonderful salvation is when we at first wonderfully and finally fully and completely realize that Jesus is our rock and Jesus is our life and Jesus is the light and Jesus is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin and the satisfying solution to the problem of hunger and thirst. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would drink deeply, drink fully, drink finally from the fountain that never dries. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. You who have no money, come and drink. Jesus is the satisfying solution. Confess your sin to Him. Receive Him as Lord and as Savior. Step closer, step closer. Find more. Don't substitute conviction for questions. Allow the full weight of your sin to do the work it was intended to do. To cause you to cry out for a Savior. In Jesus' name. After the service, I'll be available to talk with you and pray with you. If you need some help, let's stand.